Well, we're, we're getting ready to enter July, and it seems like summer just began, and in July, Heidi and I celebrate our anniversary, and um, July 12th, to be exact, if you want to give us an anniversary gift. But uh, before we got married, her dad gave us all of his airline miles, and he travels internationally for his job, and back then, he was gone about every month, so he had a ton of miles as an early gift to us, and so we got to looking at the miles, and we realized we could go to Europe, and so we're like, when will we ever have an opportunity like this again? So uh, we went, and I said, we have to go to Rome. We have to see where Paul was and Peter, and we have to see the Colosseum and the Pantheon, and so we were there the first day, and we're walking up and down the cobble street, uh, streets of Rome, and, and we're going to see the Pantheon, and I have the map, and, and we're, we're kind of lost, but I had the map, so I had a pretty good idea. I knew where I was going. Heidi kept saying, I think we're going the wrong way. I think we're lost. And I'm like, you've never been to Rome. How would you even know? And so I just kept saying, trust in me. Trust in me. I got this. And so time had passed. And I saw over here across the street, I saw a city map. So let's go check out the city map. So we get over there to get our bearings. I hold up my map next to that map to see where we are. And that's when we realized I had been holding the map upside down. In my defense, it was not in English. And, uh, and needless to say, it's been difficult for Heidi to trust me when it comes to directions and navigating things. Uh, but a lot of us are like Heidi. Sometimes we find it difficult to trust. It's either tr- difficult trusting in a spouse who's directionally challenged, or it could be trusting in a friend, a coworker, a family member, your football team, and a rebuilding year. And so sometimes faith is difficult. And I... I bet all of us at some point have found it difficult to trust in God. There's been a time where we just thought, man, God, what are you doing? What's going on here? In our story today, we're going to see a man by the name of Jairus, and he has a 12-year-old daughter, and she's dying. And uh, so we're going to see he's on this desperate quest, quest to save her life, but it's interrupted. So let's get an outline here. We're going to see first Jairus' desperate quest, and then we're going to see the quest interrupted. And then we'll see Jairus' faith, and then we'll see the final scene at Jairus' house. And I've given you a more applicational outline in your bulletin. It's just two sections. Jesus gives life to the living. And then in the second section of our passage, we'll see that Jesus gives life to the dead. So if you would, if you haven't already, turn with me to Luke chapter 8, or your Bible apps, whatever you got. Let's look at Luke 8, starting in verse 40. And it said, as Jesus returned, the people welcomed him, for they had been waiting for him. And the, the word people here is really crowd. The crowds were waiting for him on, this, on the Sea of Galilee shoreline. And the way it's written is that there's excitement and enthusiasm in the crowd. There's this buzz in the air, and they're waiting and anticipating Jesus to land in Galilee. It's kind of like the Beatles are coming to America for the first time. Everybody is just excited. And there came a man named Jairus, and he was a fisher of the synagogue. And he fell at Jesus' feet. So Jesus comes, but he is coming. uh, Let's get our map up here. I've got to figure out how to use JB's laser gun. There we go. So where's it at? There we go. So we're going to be up in this region in our story. But in the previous story, uh, Jesus was over here on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. And so you see right here, this is the Decapolis. It's the Gentile region. This is Deca and Polis. These are two Greek words for ten cities. So this is the region of ten cities. 
And it talks about how uh, he's in a region of uh, Gadara. So there's another smaller region right here, Gadara. And then there's a site right here. And then Jesus is going to be right there. And that's the Gazarenes. And so this is the story of the demoniac. He has just healed the demoniac. The pigs went over into the sea. And so they ran him out because he killed their pigs. And so he goes back to the Jewish side, which is Galilee. We're familiar with Galilee. And here's Samaria. And down here, not on the map, is Jerusalem, Judea. And so Jesus has come back across the sea, and he's landed. And Mark tells us that, in his account, account of the story, he tells us that the crowd is so dense and so thick that Jesus can't even get off the seashore. He's just stuck there because the crowd is so pressing. And so like I said, verse 41, a man named Jairus, who was a fisher of the synagogue, fell at Jesus' feet and began to implore him come to come to his house because he had an only daughter about 12 years old and she was dying. And it was, when it says she is dying, it means... She's dying, like right then. She's taking her last breath. She's not sick. She's expiring. Time is running out. So there's urgency here. And when it says he's an official of the synagogue, it's really a ruler of the synagogue. Acts 13.15 talks about rulers of a synagogue. So best we can tell from Scripture is that in each synagogue, there was like a committee of elders, as these synagogue rulers, and they oversaw Sabbath service in the order of how everything went. So they were kind of the the pastors of these synagogues, if you can kind of relate it to what we do today. And it says that he frantically comes to Jesus because his 12-year-old daughter is dying. Now, 12 years old sounds pretty young to us, but in this culture, her life is really just beginning because in the next year or two, she's going to get married. And we would say, that's really young. We don't want our 13, 14-year-old daughters getting married. But back then, that was kind of the way the culture was. So really, her life is just beginning and we see, see here the tragedy that it looks like it's going to end before it ever begins. And it says there at the end of 42, but as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And when it says pressing, it literally says choking. It is suffocating. Jesus cannot make his way through the crowd because every time he's pushing, he's getting pushed back because the crowds are so dense and so thick. I mean, it, I think it'd be kind of like the walk around at the peak time of foot traffic. You know, you can't get anywhere in that crowd. And that's kind of how it is here. G is suffocating his progress. He cannot push forward with Jairus to get to this daughter. And so here's a man, and trying to put yourself in his position, what is he thinking? He's been anxiously waiting on the seashore, waiting for Jesus, looking for boats over the horizon, hoping Jesus is on the boat. Time is running out. His daughter is dying. Now, when we have loved ones who are dying, where do we want to be? We want to be at their bedside. We want to be with them. But Jairus is not there. He went to go find Jesus, and he's waiting. He doesn't know if he's going to find Jesus, but he's desperately hoping and waiting. And then Jesus does get there, and then what happens? He can't even get off the boat. The crowd is so thick. Well, Jesus gets off the boat and says, I'll go with you to your house. But then the crowd is so suffocating, they can't even push through. And I don't know if... If I were Jairus, I would be like running lead block for Jesus. I would be knocking people down. I would be screaming. I would I'd probably throw a punch. You know, my child's life is in, in the balance. So I have no idea. But we can tell that it's a very desperate time. And he's going to lose his one and only daughter. And then something happens. Verse 43. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed came up behind him. So there's this woman... For 12 years, she's had this bleeding disorder. She's been bleeding. And so she's living. She's had this life, but she really doesn't have a life. And the reason for that is Leviticus 15, verses 25 through 27, tell us that a woman in her condition with her disorder is unclean. 
she can't be touched and she can't touch other people until her bleeding stops. And so for 12 years she's suffered, but she's had no one to hug her. She had no shoulder to cry on. She's had no one there to help carry her burdens. She's been suffering alone for 12 years. And Mark tells us that no doctor could heal her. And so she's been living, but she's really had no life. Also, not only was she excluded socially from interaction, she was excluded religiously. She couldn't go to the synagogue and worship. She couldn't go to the temple and pray because she was ceremonial, ceremonially unclean. And so she was living, but she really had no life. And she comes up behind Jesus, and she just touches the fringe of his cloak. And Mark actually tells us in chapter 5 of his gospel that she was thinking, if I can just touch his garment, I'll be healed. And so that's what she does. And it says that fringe, it's either talking about like the edge of his cloak, or it's talking about there's four tassels on the edge of Jewish men's garments. And it's commanded in Deuteronomy 22:12 that they were to wear these tassels. It separated them culturally, so that's God's people by what they wore. And so we don't know what she touched, but she touched something that he was wearing. It says that she was healed immediately. And if you've been suffering for 12 years and no doctor can help you, and you're healed like that, what do you think your reaction is going to be? Jumping up and down, joy, relief. Uh, but whatever she was feeling was quickly turned to fear and trembling. Because look at verse 45. Jesus said, who is the one that touched me? And while they all were denying, de- denying it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing on you. Basically, he's saying, who hasn't touched you? Everybody is just suffocating us. So who, who hasn't touched you? And he says, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she uh, could not escape notice, meaning she could not hide, she came trembling and fell down before him and declared in the presence of all the people the reason why she touched him. So she's waited 12 years for this moment. And her joy and relief is turned into fear and trembling. In Greek, it says she's shaking and quivering, and she falls down before Jesus. She's that scared. So why is she trembling? Why do you think? I think it's because it was shameful for women to touch men in that culture. Women were not supposed to touch men in public, and she just got caught touching not just a man, but the son of man. And so she's committed a shameful act, but she's also embarrassed Jesus, or so she thinks. So that's one reason why she's trembling. Uh, Why do you think she declared to the crowd what she did? I think she's declaring to the crowd what she did because they know she's unclean. And she just snuck in and touching all these people, and she's not supposed to be there. And so by... Uh, And notice she says that she had been healed immediately. She repeats that she's been healed immediately. She wants everybody to know that when she touched Jesus, uh, she didn't make him unclean. He made her clean. And it's written in the aorist passive, which just means it's past tense. When she's saying, he healed me, it's already happened, and I was completely passive in it. I have no room to brag. I didn't do anything. Jesus healed me and... um, And also the word healed there means to be restored back to a previous state. So when she says he healed me, she's saying, I was unclean, but now I'm clean again. So she wanted the crowd to know that she was not dirty. She's not unclean anymore, that she has been healed. She has been restored. And it seems kind of weird. It seems like Jesus is upset just because he's like, it's almost like 
power snuck out of him. Like, he didn't know. Like, who touched me? Um, but I think the reason he, he's doing this is because uh, he's wanting the crowd to know what happened. He's not wanting this girl to slip back out healed. He wants the crowd to know that he's God and that there's healing in him. And so he, he looks at her in verse 48, and he says, Daughter, your faith has made you well. What the doctors couldn't do in 12 years, Jesus did immediately. Um, and again, I think it was because he wanted to declare to the crowd that he was the Son of God and that there's healing and deliverance in who he is. Um, I talked about the word saved here. We talk about it a lot. Uh, it doesn't just mean saved like you're going to heaven. It means uh, that she's delivered. And it's not, I don't know what translation you have. The NASB says that she was healed uh, or made well. Um, it just depends on your translation. But the Greek word is saved. She's been saved from this uncleanliness. She's been saved from her status as an outcast. Jesus has not just restored uh her physical life, he's restored her spiritual life. She can go to the temple and worship. She can go to the synagogue. She can talk and interact with her friends again. She's been restored physically. She's been restored emotionally. And the word peace here, it, it, it has the idea of the Hebrew word shalom, which is a holistic type of peace. So she had peace in all aspects of her life, a peace only that Jesus can give. And I think there's many Christians out there today uh, who have eternal life uh, and they're living, but they're missing out on the fullness of that life. Uh, Jesus said, I come to give life and to give it abundantly. Uh, But sometimes we get so hung up on things in this world. We get so impeded by our hurts, our habits, and our hangups. We get so down uh, because of sin. And I think that really keeps us from uh, experiencing the full joy of what it means to have eternal life. Uh, Eternal life doesn't just refer to quantity, eternal, like forever, it also refers to quality. And so there's a quality of life that Jesus provides when we put our faith in him. And, uh, and we see that here, that the woman's life has been restored. Um, it, and like I said, it kind of seems weird that Jesus is like, hey, what happened? Who touched me? Uh, I felt power go out of me. Um, and if you're the woman, you're kind of thinking maybe, I messed up. Uh, he didn't want to heal me. It was an accident. Uh, maybe it's bad timing. And I know for me, there's a lot of times when I feel like I'm waiting and waiting on Jesus. I've been praying and praying for something and the issue is not resolved. And I feel like Jesus is preoccupied sometimes that maybe he's busy or, and I know it's bad to say, but sometimes it feels this way that he just doesn't care. It's like, you care so much and you're praying and praying and, and it feels like he's just not answering. He's not there. But I think a truth that we can gain from this section here is that Jesus' love isn't preoccupied. It's strategic. Uh, This woman had been waiting 12 years to be healed. Uh, But it came at just the right time, at just the right place, in the middle of a giant crowd where Jesus could use her suffering and her life and her faith to demonstrate that he's the Son of God and that there's healing in him. Jesus said, I've come to give life and to give it abundantly. He gives life to the living. And when we trust in him, he gives life. He's worthy to give life. So the next time you feel like you're waiting and waiting, uh, just remember the truth that God is not preoccupied. Jesus' love is not preoccupied. He's not busy. His love is strategic. 
His timing is perfect. So let's look at the next section. Jesus gives life to the dead. So while all this is going on, we still got Jairus, right? He's fighting the crowd trying to get Jesus to his daughter's house. And he looks over his shoulder and Jesus isn't there. He's back there talking to a woman, which you don't do. And I'm pretty sure Jairus would know who this woman is. Since he's a ruler of the synagogue, an official, he would know who's clean and unclean, who can come to worship and who can't come to worship. So what's Jairus thinking? Like, my daughter's dying. You said you would come, but you're back here talking to an unclean woman. What are you thinking? Am I the only one that cares about my daughter? And it says, while he was still, or, yeah, while he was still speaking, uh, a synagogue official, uh, someone who came from the official's house, he said that your daughter has died. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. And the way it's written there is to emphasize that she's dead and she's not coming back. The word order in the Greek is she's died the daughter of yours. And so by putting that word up at the front, it's emphasizing she's dead, but it's also written in perfect tense. She's dead and she will remain dead is what it means in the Greek. And it says um, uh, that Jesus, when he heard this, he answered, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe and she will be made well. And I don't think I have to tell many people here that believing, having faith in the midst of sorrow and grief is an easy thing. It's not. Uh, a few years ago when we had our miscarriage, um, I remember we got back to our apartment and we, we were at the doctor's office and we got back and Heidi just curled up in my uh, ratty old pink recliner from college and, and I called my cousin Mandy and talked with her and I, I remember hanging up, sitting by the counter. I looked at Heidi and she would kind of just fallen asleep and I remember being so hurt and empty feeling, and just I couldn't imagine the empty feeling that she was feeling, and it broke my heart, and I got mad at God. I got real mad at God. Here I am in seminary. I'm giving you my life, and you're making my life a hell. What are you doing? The worst thing ever has happened, and uh, and uh, I started yelling at him in my head because I didn't want to wake Heidi up, and so I just remember being like, God, you're what are you doing? What are you thinking? I thought you were supposed to be good at this God thing. Don't you remember Colossians 1, 16 and 17 that all things have been created through you and for you and in you all things hold together? Why couldn't you hold together my baby? Where were you? And as I was questioning his good news, I just fell back on a basic truth in the Bible. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves Heidi. He has a plan for you, and he has a plan for her. In some way, somehow, all this madness, this complete recklessness is working towards that end, that there is a plan. And so that's what I fell back on, was that he loved me, and he had a plan for me. He loved Heidi, and he had a plan for her. And sometimes life feels reckless, and it's really difficult to trust in Jesus. But his love isn't reckless. What do you think the disciples were feeling at the cross? There's our man. He's up on the cross dying. It can't get any worse. He's supposed to be the king. Uh, It had to have been a tremendously reckless time for the disciples. But it wasn't reckless. God's love was strategic. It was all planned. And so like Jairus, who's lost his daughter, I had to patiently wait fall back, lean to, and cling tightly to the strategic love of Jesus. Do not be afraid 
any longer only believe Jesus' love is not reckless. It's strategic. He knows what he's doing. His timing is perfect. Jesus' love isn't reckless. It's strategic. And I think it's interesting that in verse 48, he, he addresses the woman as daughter. This is the only time you'll find Jesus addressing a woman directly as daughter. And the reason I think he did it is not just because it gives good symmetry to our passage, like, oh, Jairus has a daughter who's 12 years old, and this woman he calls daughter, and she's been suffering for 12 years. I think that's plain. I think it's God's amazing ability to write his word, but I also think it's Jesus giving comfort to this man because he calls her daughter, and Jairus heard her. And when Jairus is saying, my daughter is dead, Jesus is telling him, you can trust in me. I have a daughter too, and I healed her. I can heal daughters. Let's go to your house. And it says that they go. And when he came to the house, he did not allow anyone to enter with him except Peter, John, and James, and the girl's father and mother. This is like a heading statement of what's going to happen in the next section. For, so verse 42 is the beginning of the section. Now, they were all weeping and lamenting for her, but he said, Stop weeping, for she has not died, but is asleep. And they all began, or they began laughing at him, knowing that she had died. And so I, it's kind of weird, because he tells Jairus, Hey, don't be afraid, believe, and she'll be healed. So it's like, did he heal the girl uh, in spite of his skepticism? And so it's kind of weird, but if you go to Mark chapter 5, when he tells the story, he gives us more detail of what's going on in the house. So what happened is Jesus gets to the house, uh, and he enters, and there's all these people mourning and lamenting. And back then, if you were well off in the society like this official is, you hire people to mourn, and they're called professional mourners. And so the louder and the more theatrical they got, uh, the more people could see it, obviously. And it demonstrated the family's grief and tragedy. And so Jesus walks in. All these people are mourning. And Jesus says, stop weeping. She's not dead. She's just asleep. So the people laughing are the professional mourners, not the family. And Mark tells us he kicks them all out. They laugh at him and he says, get out of here. And so then he takes Peter, John, and James, and the parents into the girl's bedroom, and that's where we pick up. He took her by the hand and called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up immediately, and he gave orders for something to be given to her to eat. I, I kind of identify with the mourners here. I, I get up, when I think about people who I've lost in my life, I tend to feel like they're gone, and I'm never going to see them again. And and that's my natural earthly perspective. But what we see from Jesus is a supernatural, a spiritual perspective. Because death is not the end. If you have trusted in Jesus for eternal life, you have eternal life. And the Bible says that when we die, we go to be in his presence. And so to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so what happens is death isn't annihilation or extinction. Death is separation. Our spirit and soul separates from our body, goes to be with the Lord, and our bodies stay here. But there's an appointed time when there will be a resurrection. This is our hope as Christians, the resurrection. Jesus conquered death, and we all too will conquer death. And so um, uh, Jesus calls back this girl's spirit to her body, and she's back alive. And so we see that Jesus gives life to the dead also. But Jesus doesn't have power just over physical life. He has power over spiritual life. We all come into the world dead in our trespasses and sin. Ephesians 2.1, Colossians 2.13 both say that. We are separated from God when we come into this world. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So when we put our faith in Jesus, we're given life. We're no longer separated from God. And if anyone here hasn't trusted in Jesus for eternal life, or maybe you don't know if you have eternal life, you can know right where you sit. The promise that Jesus gives is eternal life. He says, I give eternal life, and they shall never perish. So if you simply put your faith in Jesus for eternal life, he gives it to you as a free gift by his grace. And 1 John 5.13 tells us that we can know that we have eternal life. He writes in uh, 5.13, says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. So we can know not on the basis of our works, but we can know on the basis of our faith in Jesus. So when we put our faith, three things happen. Uh, First is we have the forgiveness of sins. Second is he gives us his righteousness. And then here he gives us his life. Uh, This John Patrick says, he who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son does not have the life. There are people in our community who are dead spiritually. They're separated from God because they have not put their faith in Jesus for eternal life. And that's why what we do and what we say matters. People are looking at us. People know where you go to church. They see your bumper stickers. They know, and they're watching our lives. Jesus says, uh, or no, Jesus, Paul says that we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God is making the appeal through our lives. People are watching us. We represent the Savior. And if our life shows no signs of new life, then they're never going to believe our message about Jesus. So what we do and what we say matters. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus, you can have eternal life. Jesus is trustworthy to give life. He gives life to the dead. So this last verse is kind of puzzling. It says, He gave uh, instructions to them, the parents, uh, not to tell anyone what happened. It's kind of weird. It's like, why wouldn't you want people to testify about all your goodness, Jesus? And in the story about the demoniac over in verse 38, he tells the guy to go tell everybody. Go tell the whole region what he did. He doesn't say be quiet. He says tell your family, tell everyone. So it's kind of puzzling, I think, two reasons. Luke's writing to Gentiles, and the demoniac was a Gentile, so of course he wants his Gentile readers to know Jesus also uh, is for the, for the Gentiles. But I think in our passage, uh, or over here in our story, um, he tells them to be quiet because I think it's crowd control. If the crowds are so suffocating because he heals the sick, how much more suffocating will they be when they find out he raises people from the dead? So I think it's a little bit of crowd control here. Well, we've seen that Jesus gives life to both the living and the dead. Uh, When it's difficult to trust in him, I, I see two things that are helpful. Knowing the truth that Jesus isn't preoccupied, he hears your prayers. Uh, He's waiting for that strategic timing. Uh, Also, the truth is his love isn't reckless. It's strategic. And I've used the word strategic throughout this, and the reason for that is there's a word that pops up three times in our text. It's the word immediately. And it's three times here. Luke uses it a total of ten times in the entire gospel. So it's kind of important that it's three times here. And... uh, Mark uses, he tells the same story, like I said, in chapter 5, and he uses the word immediately also. But in Greek, it's two different words. You can't tell it in your Bible, but he's using two different words. So Mark, when he tells the story, he uses this weird-looking word, euthus, and it means sudden action, rapid sequence. 
Jesus said this, and immediately he went on and did this, and immediately he went on this. It's about focused on action. Luke uses another weird-looking word. It's parakrema, and it's focused on the result of the action. So not so much the action of being immediate, but the immediate result of the action. And the reason I, I kind of thought this was interesting is, for a woman waiting 12 years, do you think her healing was immediate or sudden? She'd been waiting 12 lonely years. It probably didn't feel immediate or jealous. He had been anxiously waiting on the seashore. Jesus finally gets there. He's got to fight the crowd. Then this woman interrupts, and then he finds out his daughter's dead. And we don't know because it doesn't tell us how long it took for him to get from where he learned that the daughter was dead to the actual house. It could have been 10 minutes. It could have been 30 minutes. We don't know. So then there's that whole time of waiting and being sad there. So the healing didn't feel immediate also. But what's immediate is the result. The clock was working against both these people, but Jesus' timing is strategic. It was perfect. What gives us comfort is Jesus' love isn't preoccupied. It's not reckless. It's strategic. It's at just the right time. And I know on this side of heaven, it feels a little bit delayed sometimes, but it's not. It's always without delay. Jesus' time is always without delay. Because he loves us and his timing is that strategic and it's for his glory. So let's trust in the strategic timing of God. Faith is not always easy to have in difficult times. Just like it wasn't easy for Heidi to trust in me with my uh, inability to read maps. But knowing the truth about Jesus' love, that it's not preoccupied, that it is not reckless, helps us to trust in him during those difficult times when we feel lost in life.